0: I obviously made a mistake. I made a mistake. I trusted. I believed. Family. Maybe a mafia family. You turn your back and you get whacked. Our guys come back from Japan with this NEC. And it's loaded with Microsoft programs, your Microsoft programs. They're almost identical to ours. There may be some similarities, Steve. Similarities. Similarities. (laughs) Try theft. Steve, all cars have steering wheels, but no one tries to claim that the steering wheel was their invention. We have a contract, you and I. Well, you should read it more carefully. What is this? This is like doing business with, um, like a praying mantis, huh? You get seduced and then eaten alive afterwards. Get real, will you? You and I are both like guys that had this rich neighbor, Xerox, that left the door open all the time and you go sneaking in to steal the TV set. Only when you get there, you realize that I got there first. I got the loot, Steve! And you're yelling? That's not fair? I wanted to try to steal it first. You're too late. We're better than you are. We have better stuff. You don't get it, Steve. That doesn't matter. I had a dream about this place.
1: an uh, administrative software rather mundane a bureaucratic thing for the legal profession um, it happened to be a masterful piece of work as a as an example of software uh, it had revolutionary capabilities and came in just at the right right time and had enormous potential applications outside of just managing the caseloads of a local district attorney's office. And it was in light of these, not only its own abilities and the, and the potential applications that Inslaw
2: expected
1: a that this software would give them access to a market worth three billion dollars sales.
2: That's billion with a a B. Billion with a B.
1: But on the road to this $3 billion market, Inslaw signed a contract for $10 million, a contract with the Justice Department. And this is the contract that is, I guess, it's the spark that creates the conflagration. That we then know of as the Inns law case. It was a contract that was conceptualized in '81, signed in '82. Started a bankruptcy case in 1985, that would then grind on for really the next 20 years.
2: And um, there's a uh, there's one particular day in all that. There's- Extremely important, isn't it? And um, could you tell us what that day is and why it's important?
1: Well, almost there's not just one day, but two days. The first is Hitler's birthday in 1983, which is 420 1983 At this point, Innslaw has, Inns has been under contract with the Justice Department for one year. It has been a year of complication and turmoil with what seems like the worst client in the history of clients, United States Justice Department. On this day, as part of a, a, a misguided attempt at settlement, at clearing the air, at going along with the contract, Innslaw gives to the Justice Department, having received Certain guarantees, which would prove useless and worthless in the face of the Justice Department's actions, later actions, gave to the Justice Department with guarantees a copy of the source code for promise. So this, to me, is the most important date in the Innslaw case, because almost this is the date at which Inslaw's further actions become just a matter of historical interest um, in that once they've given the software, the, the source code away to someone who's willing to to steal it and disseminate it, it's um, nothing else that Inslaw does really matters to the story of problems. They are just there in the background keeping the pot churning because Inslaw, Bill and Nancy Hamilton, um, they know they've been wronged, and they're not shutting up or going away. It doesn't, do, it, it doesn't end up doing them any good. Uh, and again, they are dead by April 20th, 1983. This the purpose of the story. Um, but they are still attempting to seek redress through the same legal channels and legal mechanisms that ripped them off. And so by the time 1990 rolls around, specifically August 1990, this is the second important date, I guess, in in today's promised narration, is that Bill Hamilton meets with someone he's been looking for for several years.
2: When we say Bill Hamilton has been looking for him uh, for several years, we don't mean he's been looking for this specific guy. What he's been looking for is somebody who will give him a fair hearing because by 1990, uh, Hamilton and Inslaw and the theft of promise has been pushed way out to the margins and nobody will give him or his company or his story the time of day. And this is when he crosses paths with... Danny Joseph Casolaro, who is the first journalist in a long while um, who has expressed any interest in Bill Hamilton's side of the story. And as, as you've told me before, Ben, Danny didn't know it yet, but by meeting with Hamilton in his office in August of 1990, he has taken the first step on a road, which is going to lead him to his death. So what we want to make clear before we go any further in this story is that absolutely everything that we are going to discuss tonight and in episodes to come should be questioned and cross-referenced because a lot of people had lots of reasons to lie or you know tell part of the truth or offer facts that were meant to divert away from something else and this tangle of truth and fantasy will form a sort of meta narrative as we get deeper into this episode and deeper into this series. This tangle is ultimately what led Danny Casalaro to his end. But I wanna get some in here just at the top of the show about how uh, Ben and I both do admire what Danny did, especially given we might seem like we're being quite critical of him at certain points. This series would not be possible without his work. Any skepticism or any criticism that we have is purely a matter of 30 years of additional uh, facts and evidence, plus a better you know, contemporary grasp of how intelligence operations function. It's just a matter of that having disproven or recontextualized parts of his research. But Ben, I think, would agree with me that his basic thesis is still sound we just disagree on, on certain specifics or we have questions, as they say. No, absolutely.
1: Um, I, I I can't uh, just overstate my admiration for his drive and his passion to tell this story and to tell it right. Um, and again, it was ultimately, it was a passion which consumed and it consumed him in. I said, what, what was the date of his actual death? Was it ninety? It was ninety-one or ninety-two. It was August tenth, nineteen
2: ninety-one.
1: So it was in. So from it was almost just about one year from his meeting Bill Hamilton in August nineteen ninety. It's Danny Casalero is dead. Um, and so I think it's again something when we look back. We, you know, we talk about things in the 80s or the 70s or jump forward in the head. But this is all stuff that's happening at the time, in real time, to the participants. And I think it's, it's an interesting point that Danny Casalero had been as journalist his entire life, had been on the planet his entire life, and had somehow, up to that point, not died yet. You know, I mean, what he goes down to, we're going to tell an element of the story, he goes down to South America, goes to Peru in the 70s to search for lost Andean gold. And he he somehow manages manages to come back to the United States with his head still attached to his body. But nonetheless, he meets Bill Hamilton in August 1990. In August 1991, Danny Casalero is
2: dead. To understand the the journey that Danny went on between... The summer that he met Bill Hamilton and the summer that he died, it would help us to go back really to the beginning and have a think about Danny's life, uh, his background and what his interests were as well. So I guess it would be
1: unsurprising that Danny, like every single other person in human history, was shaped by the circumstances of his birth, the people who his parents were, where he was born and the social milieu in which he swam. So specifically, again, Danny was born in McLean, Virginia, which is the bedroom community, the place where everyone owns their houses, who works in the security establishment, um, the, the, the organized intelligence services and those related agencies and the connected government contractors and professional services uh, who all work uh, just, just down the road in other areas.
2: He's the son of an obstetrician, second born of six. Uh, He has a little brother who died as a baby and his sister, Lisa, overdosed in Hay-Ashbury in the 70s. Now, the family weren't sure if this was a suicide or an accident, but Danny certainly seems to have thought it was a suicide and resolves never to die the same way. Uh, In fact, he is a devout Catholic and these two... Bits of uh, Casalaro's life are very important in the law of his story. And he basically grew up in Americana, didn't he? I mean, I,
1: I would have a hard time to get more American than a, I suppose, white Catholic. Oh, that is the, I guess that's the little fly enlightenment there in Danny's um, early history. But to say white American live in mid-Atlantic area... In boomer generation and parents who live who worked in or around the security establishment. That's wow. That is pretty. That is a, that is American as a pair of, of Spar- stars star with band drawers.
2: Yeah, they even raised um, thoroughbred horses as well, which Arabian ponies. Arabian ponies. Yeah. Um... Do we do we know what they were? I mean, I'm, were they racing ponies or were they? I don't know if they they were kind of raising them for studying. I don't really know much about. Um, <laughs> I, d- I know nothing about horse breeding or horse fancying, whatever it's called. I'm I'm, I'm gonna
1: I'm, I'm gonna make a call out to make all the people who, who listen to this podcast that are, are horse people. It's I think horses are really really stupid animals <laughs> that die for really really ridiculous reasons. Um, something that that we we. Will experience as Danny Casalero gets older in in, in, in his life, and, and explicitly in this final year or these final years of his existence, um, is who was um, who was paying the bills? Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, put a pin in that, um, but I think like just for just for some additional sort of flavor of. Um, of his mindset, of how he viewed the world and whatnot. So when he graduates from college in 1968, he has this dream of becoming a writer. Um, He's very much kind of a typical God, apple pie, and America sort of person. And um, he has a dream of becoming a writer. He's a poet. He fancies himself a poet. And he has like a fixation on the great Gatsby as well, you know, To him, suburban Virginia felt too small. So he ended up going off on, yeah, an excursion to uh, Peru to search for lost Inca treasure. Uh, And when that didn't work out, he came back. And through the 70s, he tries to, yeah, he tries to make it happen. He tries to find a route into um, journalism. He definitely sees himself as a reporter in the Woodward and Bernstein mold. Would you say that's fair?
1: It is, but I guess almost like, in the same way that of, of like painters who see themselves in the mold of someone who was actually influential and successful, of which of which he was at this point in his career, neither. That was, I, I think that, that like, it,
2: it, the thing in Danny Castellaro's career,
1: he is chasing success.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about his efforts throughout the 70s is that there was a definite right-leaning um, slant to a lot of his his pitches, a lot of the articles that he wrote. I I showed you the the clipping, uh, didn't I, Ben? The um the claims that he made in that resume that he wrote in 1982 that he was the first U.S. journalist to um, discover uh, the composition and size of the Castro intelligence network. He says that he was the one who discovered that. He also says that he exposed. Uh, Chinese communists smuggling opium into America. And he also says that in 1973 and 74, he was the first journalist to expose and document the prior knowledge of Watergate scandal, which is this theory that Watergate was actually a a kind of a, a palace coup um, by the CIA. And all of this is disputed. Even his friends say that it's highly unlikely that he actually uncovered any of this and the places where he did manage to publish stories they weren't especially well respected you've got uh washington crime news the inquirer and herman otter as well so yeah not exactly a sterling cv it's not setting the world on fire
1: yes you know that that is exactly my same perspective on it we can say oh he had uh right leading views or he got he got tied up in in what would seem like to us looking back, like um, weird conservative, like uh, conspiracy theory obsessions or whatever, you know, again, like the the Chinese smuggling dope to, to you know, to, to, addict white America, um, you, know, you know, it was like revenge, revenge for the 19th century.
2: People have used this to kind of paint him as a, a reactionary right winger. And on the flip side of that, you have people who say that he was a very naive liberal, you know, but... Um, to me, from from everything I've really learned doing this show over the last couple of years and focusing on like American history, Danny honestly just strikes me as a typical American who was born in the middle of the twentieth century. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, again, we, we
1: brought up those points that, that we just did because it's like that was that is just how people of that generation and that class and that background just. Just thought that was their worldview. That was, that was, is part of how they saw the universe operating as the sun rising and setting, you know, twice a day.
2: Yeah. I think a, a lot of his friends as well and, and journalists who knew him um, later on, they've basically said that he was a truly nice, pleasant guy who was played ideologically incoherent, as you would expect from someone with his class background. He freelances for a time uh, through the 1970s. Uh, he places what few pieces he can, not particularly illustrious outlets. And then in, I believe it was 78 or 79, um, his wife asked for a divorce. Uh, this was... Uh, Terril, I think she's called. Uh, We'll just call her Terry. She was a former Miss Virginia, which, you know, that's another thing we need to mention about Danny is uh, he was very tall, blonde, and handsome. This breaks him, this divorce. And so he abandons all hope of becoming a a novelist or an investigative journalist or anything. Um, Although in his files... There are still pitches for TV shows and books and films that survive from this period of time. And uh, this is kind of going off on a tangent, but I just find it quite an endearing little detail about him, which is he wrote um, a pitch for a a DC-based news program. It's supposed to be an evening talk show, half an hour long. And he wrote six five-minute investigative segments, researched them as well, And then never submitted it anywhere, which (laughs) having tried my hand at writing, I sort of sympathize quite a lot with that. Going to all that effort and then not following through um, at the last second. He picks up work at Computer Age magazine uh, in 1980. And he begins to work his way up uh, from writer to editor. And eventually he ends up co-owning Computer Age. But he never entirely loses this writing book you know this desire to break big stories of historically important
1: it's uh if, if i can it's it's almost like danny casolero goes through two midlife crises is one in essentially 78 79 80 his wife leaves him he essentially drops what he's doing and he gets a a job you know really a, i almost i'd say a job with squares writing um filler in a, I mean, you, you, I mean, you think how dreadful, intelligent, you know, information technology journalism is today. I mean, think of writing articles for a computer industry rag in 1980. So Danny spends the next ten years, however, not just spinning his wheels, because as we mentioned earlier, is is you know, not to denigrate Danny is again. This is a driven, capable journalist with, you know, intelligent, good command on writing, you know, creative, willing. I mean, it's like he has an enormous array of virtues and the energy and connections to make those of use. And so he goes from, again,
2: writing filler in the, in the magazine to 10 years later, he owns it. This is where we can just sort of circle back to this issue of the money again, because when you read between the lines of his biography, it seems that money always came easily to Danny, even when he seemed to be down on his luck, um, which, you know, again, archetypal mid-century American, really, uh, from his particular class. Uh, So, you've got friends who talk about how he'd think nothing of renting out an entire bar uh, for their birthdays, or, you know, he'd pay for expensive theater tickets and whatnot. Um, So, yeah, not to get too plonky, but there is an irony, a bitter irony, really, in how in 1990, he was going to set off on a journey that would bring him into confrontation with the murky sort of security state underworld that you know arguably enabled and sustained all this free and easy living that he'd enjoyed for so much of his life um and then it's in so it's in 1990 anyway when he reaches yeah the i suppose we could call it like the second crisis
1: his second midlife crisis he, so he's again he's he's had now 10 years of success and he for Reasons that I cannot yet fathom, this is the year he decides to do really two, again, things that are pivotal. pivotal. One is that he essentially surrenders his ownership stake of the magazine. Everything I've read about how he departs from that magazine is that he had equity and he just essentially, he he either was robbed of it and didn't care or just sold it at, at essentially for a song.
2: Danny does this business deal and he doesn't make a hell of a lot of money out of it. In fact, uh, the, the phrase I saw used was he took a bath on the deal. Um, he's casting about for a big scoop. And this whole time, he's very much, again, typical sort of mindset of his kind of American in that the... American system is innately good. And it's just a few bad people here and there who are ruining everything for the rest of us. So all you have to do is get rid of the bad people and put good people in there and everything will fix itself. And this is something else that is probably unwise to pathologize or speculate about Danny's mindset too much. But in um, most of the accounts of his life, the discovery of... um, Bill Hamilton and Innslaw and the theft of promise, that seems to have been a, a quite a shattering moment for him because um, it led him perhaps to conclude that the, the rot was so deep in American society that his previous assumptions were re- now redundant about how it might be fixed.
1: So if, if we can, to go from there, is to revisit just a moment of the... Of the money. Can as you say he 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 spent he spent freely and apparently had no concern as to the amount of money that was coming in and going out. So you can say that like well geez you know was the money coming in from his parents? It's like well his, his parents is like but his dad I think was the was the optrician. Um, and he's one of now now four surviving adult children it's just like I don't I don't think they were so wealthy that they could underwrite Danny Castellero living the sort of lifestyle that Danny Casalero seemed to be able to live. Um, and so I guess it, it's if at this point I'm, I'm willing to kind of like drop one of the, the lures that we might pick up later is someone was paying Danny Castellero's bills. It's not anyone that has been mentioned yet in this story or in any treatment of his life. And you, and you would know an awful lot more about, I think, the circumstances of his death if we knew who was paying the bills.
2: I mean, he had uh, he was still keeping the, the horses after he saw Computer Age. He had a living housekeeper as well. Lived in a half a million dollar house on three acres. Never seems to have had any issue um, paying the mortgage or anything. Um, So it's a worthwhile question to ask is how was he financing this freelance um, expedition that he was about to embark on? Um, Now, Danny discovered the Innslaw case because he was tipped off to it by a colleague of his called Terry Miller, And after Danny did a little bit of reading around, he then reached out to a historian and a journalist called Jeff Steinberg. Now, um, Jeff Steinberg will be coming back into this story um, in a little bit. For now, though, just bear in mind that Jeff Steinberg is a LaRouche movement lifer. He served as director of counterintelligence at Executive Intelligence Review from 1977 until 2015, I believe. LaRouche intelligence reports were found in Danny's files, and the Inslaw case is something that would have greatly interested uh, LaRouche's because of what it would appear to confirm about Lyndon LaRouche's own take on American economics and American history. Danny now then, for the first time, meets Bill Hamilton.
1: The meeting with Bill Hamilton for Danny was... Productive in two very significant reasons. One is that Danny, probably for the first or maybe maybe second time of his life, if we go back to the story of the lost treasure in the Andes, is... He found in the story of Innslaw, the story of promise, the story that Bill Hamilton had to tell him, the first scent of gold that he had had in 20 years. And solid gold, that. This isn't mystery treasure in the mountains. This is high-grade Peruvian blue flake. Government malfeasance. Corruption. Fraud. Extortion. Theft. Betrayal of trust. Degradation of the institutions. It is a sordid, nasty tale that would certainly make a fantastic 300-plus page novel that is on first in the New York Times bestseller list for weeks and weeks and weeks. Because something that grasps Danny out of this isn't just that. Well, geez, I can write an article on this in what is it? Southern Living Shotgun Review or what was he? What was he writing for? Hermanota Magazine. Hermanota oh, Magazine. Okay. Um, so it won't be just a another journal article for for the Home and Auto magazine Men of the Summer issue. Um, He's going to write a book. He's going to blow this open in a book. And that
2: book's name? Behold a Pale Horse. I really like that as a title for a book, to be fair. I think that is great. No, that's a good one. Yeah.
1: That is good. But what does Danny find? Because this was the two-part proposition that I brought up earlier. What is the other component that Danny finds, and as well, it's the it's the hard facts of the organization, or rather, really of the criminal network
2: that it, that robbed Innslaw. I think that what's interesting about this section of Danny's story is. Um, he was the first who looked at Inselot and promise and really began to sort of spread out and make these different connections. This guy, Jeff Steinberg had sort of been digging away at it a little bit, but Danny was the first one who fully committed and was like, I am completely on board with this and I'm going to chase every single, for lack of a better term, uh, I'm going to chase every single tentacle uh, no matter where it leads me. And To do that, Danny first had to hear Bill Hamilton's story of how the relationship between Innslaw and the Department of Justice had broken down over a period of years.
1: Back the clock a little bit to 1981, right? So this is a year before INSLAW and the Justice Department signed this pivotal this pivotal $10 million contract. So some important things happened this year. One of which, as we discussed in episode one. Is that the Justice Department robs In's Law of one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, and Law just just kind of uh, says, "Oh well, it's all in the game. We'll move down the road and think about it later." the The other components is is that there are a a a meeting of what we now call the Promise Oversight Committee.
2: So, Ghost Man, do you want to get into some of the details of the Promise Oversight Committee? The Department of Justice it forms a Promise Oversight Committee, and the intention of this committee is ostensibly to supervise promises rollout to 94 U.S. attorneys' offices. Uh, this is throughout 1981 going into 1982. However, there are some very interesting names on this committee. So, top of the list uh, there is the uh, the then associate attorney general rudolph giuliani the rock star i suppose america's mayor the guy who grew up to move um was it the emergency response command center or something he moved that to the world trade center just before 9-11
1: yeah so because it was close to his girlfriend's house
2: yeah there you go you also have um associate deputy attorney general stanley e morris uh, he's a lifelong uh creature of the government bureaucracy uh, directed operational planning at the then department of health and later served in the white house office of management and budget u.s department of justice white house drug office and eventually under reagan he would become the director of the u.s marshal service with a specific focus on anti-money laundering and counterintelligence efforts You have the Director of the Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys, uh, William P. Tyson. He served in the Army, 52 to 67, moved to the Justice Department in 71. You also have Associate Attorney General Lowell Jensen. Now, we mentioned him in part one. This is from the Washington Post. Quote, before coming to the Justice Department, Jensen had been in the Alameda County Prosecutor's Office, where he had supervised the development of a competing case tracking software called... D.A. Light, we mentioned that last time, D.A. Light. Jensen was disappointed when the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office and LEAA, the Law Enforcement uh, Assistance Administration, had opted for promise. And then it's shortly after this oversight committee is formed, April of 1981, uh, the Director of the Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys, Lawrence McArthur, he asked his subordinate Frank Malgrave to oversee uh, the pilot implementation of Promise in his office. Now, according to Malgrave later, uh, and this was over coffee and cigars in McWhorter's office, he flatly told Malgrave, we are out to get Inslaw.
1: So again, it's interesting just from a history of, of the wider use of computerized tools to track and manage population, That you have already in 1981 the, the Justice Department putting together essentially kind of a blue ribbon committee of people sitting down saying, okay, this is what we as these high level functionaries in this justice system want out of a piece of software that is proposing to revolutionize our carrying out of our bureaucratic and administrative function." In this committee, in this oversight committee, is the salesperson for one of the, com- one of the software packages, which interestingly enough doesn't end up getting <laughs> accepted. The oversight committee from its inception has a problem. And it's the, the setting aside whatever potential conflict of interest violations you have from anyone else. You have again, as one of the committee members, is this salesperson was now grinding an axe because it turns out that what he was selling wasn't as good as what someone else actually was giving away. Because at this point, again, Promise was a public domain piece of software. Its entire source code, everything was just out there. All you had to do was just, just implement it. You didn't have to pay a penny in, in, in license fees.
2: And there's something else as well going on with this oversight committee. I think it's pretty obvious, but I'll just um, make it explicit. Almost everybody on this committee is connected in one way or another to the US uh, military intelligence complex, I suppose we could call it. And if not, they are extremely ambitious operators who are useful to that complex. So for example, uh, uh, Stanley Morris, uh, head of Counterintelligence efforts at US Marshal Service. Uh, William P. Tyson served in the US Army 52 to 67, 67 being the first year of the Phoenix program. Um, he's not even the only Phoenix program connected person in this story. And uh, yeah, Lowell Jensen, who'd made himself useful in California working with you know the law enforcement agencies there, which were effectively fronts for the CIA. Uh, and its domestic operations, which it shouldn't have been doing, but was doing. So, yeah, right from the get-go, uh, Inslaw have kind of <laughs> stumbled into the lion's den and, and don't quite realize it yet.
1: Yeah, really, it's like, they haven't even entered the stage, entered the scene, entered the, pl- entered the script as an actor, and already the engines that will end up resulting in their destruction are being constructed right before our eyes so the promise oversight committee in 81 outlines what they're expecting out of this piece of software this then is passed along to the justice department for implementation and 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 the realization of this Oversight Committee's report. The thing that ends up actually happening in the real world out of this is that this ten million dollar contract is then tendered, for which Inslaw, proposing this promise software, um, is 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 the winner of the contract. Um, So the contract is a significant thing for for uh, reasons. One of which is that it's again it is it's the mechanism of the contract that ends up bringing in's law's downfall and the the i guess the how the promise software ends up being stolen but it's important to think about at this time what the word promise means to different people and in different circumstances So the contract that Inslaw signed with the Justice Department that the Justice Department tendered publicly was that you would, in exchange for $10 million that was spaced out over certain milestones, deliver a software system that was in the promised style and met certain performance and capability requirements. Um, Commonly, this is derived up in, these are divided up into blocks or modification numbers. So block one, two, three, four, you know, modification one, two, three, four. I think actually the the thing that this later lawsuit kind of ends up hinging around is modification number 12 in the contract the Justice Department was paying for. And so INS Law proposes uh, uh, to meet this tender request from the Justice Department by modifying promise in ways that will satisfy the Justice Department's requests. At essentially this same time, while they have this, this one contract job, INSLAW is also working on a very related project, which is to take the public domain promise, which is designed around um, a 16-bit hardware environment. So there was, there was a generational leap in, in computing technology at this time. Uh, that we can, I suppose, go into later. But essentially, it's like the, the, it's the next generation of machines. Software's got to be rewritten, got to be upgraded. That they have sat down and, and rewritten the software and added a whole bunch of nice new modifications that are now all proprietary to InnsLaw. And that they can then sell this, this new upgraded version of Promise Promise 2.0, on to whoever they want. The project with the Justice Department ends up getting into problems. The contract with the Justice Department was, if fruitful in anything, was fruitful of problems. The Justice Department being the the worst client in the history of clients, um, was... Almost intentionally and deliberately preventing the satisfaction of the goals in the contract and preventing the release of the software that they had wanted released throughout this entire, particularly early history, um, is very accommodating. And always willing to make concessions to the Justice Department. Uh, always willing to do favors. In in just in this, it's, oh, these are these are problems at the moment, they're going to work out later. Since the end justifies the means the the whole is greater than the sum of any one of its parts. One of the favors that he does for the Justice Department. That I think is is really the start of of the this is the match that's dropped on the very long uh, run of of gunpowder, you know, before the stockpile explodes. Um, so Bill Hamilton says, "Okay, so we got you know we're still we're still going through these these contract disputes, blah blah blah. How about?" we let you guys use this other version of the software that we have this is this isn't this wasn't designed for the justice departments contract per se this was their own proprietary thing but we will let you use this proprietary version while we get the contract nailed with the, with the assumption at least on their part that okay this is temporary thing, they will use this other version of the software and this is just really as a stopgap until the contract disputes could be hammered out and then they can install on the requisite number of systems this other, um, you know, this actual contracted version of promise.
2: And this is a really crucial thing to bear in mind, which is There are effectively two versions of promise that Inslaw have at this point. One is the public domain version they've been tinkering with, which they are intending to install under the terms of the 82 contract in the uh, Justice Department um, computers. Now there is enhanced promise or spooky promise, as I keep calling it, which is this new, bigger, sexier version of promise. After the Justice Department get a taste for that, that is the version of promise they want, the enhanced version. However, there is no feasible way for the Department of Justice to get hold of spooky promise without uh, stealing it from Inslaw or obtaining proprietary ownership of the source code through you know, means, fair or foul.
1: There was something the Justice Department probably could have done, which is that if they liked it so much, why did they just buy it? I and mean, I think in a way, an answer for that is, is, is twofold. Is one because they they didn't want to spend the money. Why buy something you can steal it? Um, uh, and and two, and it's, this is something I'd have to confirm with Bill Hamilton. Is I don't think he'd sell. What could the Justice Department offer him at this point? Say we give you fifty million dollars for a copy of the source code? It's like no. I think the market is three billion dollars a year.
2: That's an insult. The month after they sign the the ten million dollar contract, April nineteen eighty two. A guy called um, C. Madison Brewer, he's nicknamed Brick, and another fella called Peter Vedenieks, who we're going to talk about more later. Uh, He's the Department of Justice Contracting Officer. They have a meeting at the Justice Department and they discuss this new INSLA contract. And the top um, item on the agenda is whether or not to terminate the contract and how they might go about, finding an excuse to do so. It's very clear that they wanted to find a way to ruin the company and make them easy targets for a buyout because they know that Bill Hamilton will not sell. Now, everybody at this meeting will later claim that they don't remember this conversation taking place, which runs counter to the minutes that were taken at the meeting. And the committee on the judiciary will later describe this, um, what they call severe memory loss as implausible. C. Madison Brewer used to work at Insla um, and he left the company in, I believe, was it 1976? It was 76. Yeah. He left in very mysterious circumstances. He says, depending on who he was talking to, he would either say that he was fired um, for you know, baseless reasons or that he quit of his own accord. However, he was one of the Justice Department officers uh, five years later who was brought in to oversee the promised contract now this is an obvious conflict of interest and he should never have been in that position in the first place but somehow he was and it seems very very obvious that he hated inslaw he hated Bill Hamilton he wanted to destroy Inslaw uh, and he wanted to destroy Bill Hamilton as well and in fact he seems to have made no secret of this there are, dozens of memos that he and Vedeniak fired off to uh, Inslaw's lawyers, to the Justice Department from 1981 onwards, constantly trying to violate the contract on incredibly obscure uh, technicalities, basically trying to find a way to sink the entire deal. So
1: I guess uh, <clears> that, in answer to a question that hasn't quite been asked yet, is that, it's like, if things were so hostile from the beginning, well, geez, didn't in this law complain or something. There's got—I mean, in in a just society, there's got to be someone you can go to with something like this. And the answer to that question is yes, they did um, from the beginning. They pointed out that it's like, hey, see Madison Brick Brewer, ex-D.A. of the Washington D.C. area. We originally hired that guy because we thought he was going to help us sell the software. He just wanted to sit around on his ass. And he couldn't even do that right without engaging in misconduct. So that's, that's I guess, that's a, that's a, that's a more colorful way to describe the circumstances of his dismissal that, that, that Ghost Man here uh, just narrated. So he's picked by the Justice Department to be the steward for this contract. Uh, And it's an odd pick, because aside from what we just described, and also um, Madison Brick Brewers, he apparently made no secret of the fact that by now, he had been
2: nursing a grudge for seven years. I kind of love this guy, I have to admit. Like...
1: I mean just so single-minded it's like it's the this is someone who is not motivated by money or reward
2: or anything like that i have nursed a fair few grudges in my time and um i very much sympathize up to a point with this guy the romans uh
1: worshipped a version of mars called mars the avenger who was explicitly the 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 element of mars's personality you would appeal to if you had a grievance that you were nursing and wanted to avenge. So, so, so it's like, I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to hand it to him, but I, it's like, yeah, I guess I can, I can kind of understand it's seven or eight years later and you were still just as mad as hell as you were seven or eight years ago. And, and also, you can sort of add on to all of this is that he didn't. Uh, c madison brick brewer um, he didn't have any experience in computer science or information technology uh, software development application support you know um, customer engineering you know uh, managing engaging in developing whatever you want to call it of any aspect like virtually of any single aspect of like he is like the worst person you could possibly pick if you would run a rank order of number one, you know, best to least, you know, who is the worst person in the Justice Department to run the contract? The the guy, the person who picked those cards out, they 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 flipped it over and they thought like Brick Brewer last was was the best person.
2: Yeah, unless your intention all along was to hire somebody who would find a way to uh, bomb the contract. Geez, that's. A trick that he tried is that at one point, um, this is after the Justice Department has become aware of uh, Spooky Promise, Enhance Promise, at one point he suggested to them that they tell Inslaw's lawyers, which they did, that because Enhance Promise had been developed while Inslaw was contracted to justice for completely unrelated jobs and receiving it, um, partly receiving assistance from the LEAA, Um, at least in the early going of developing Enhanced Promise. Because of that, the US government, specifically the Department of Justice, owned um, Spooky Promise, which is, um, that's a dispute that I've seen sometimes in Silicon Valley, where you you have like a, a young coder develops an app while working for Apple or Google. When he tries to strike out on his own, the big company steps in and says, nope, we were paying you while you were working for us. Um, and while you were developing that app, therefore, we own the IP of that app. That's basically the trick that Justice tried there. So it's a mess. It's already a mess um, immediately upon signing this contract. It gets worse. We'll get to 83 in a second. But to summarize the remainder of 1982, Inslaw is basically trapped in a cycle of... Uh, bureaucratic disputes with the DOJ, and they all follow the same pattern. Justice says that InsLaw has violated this or that part of the contract. It withholds a payment or it demands um, unfettered access to the promised source code. Innslaw's lawyers explain that justice is wrong. Justice appears to accept this and then latches onto some other technicality to try and blow up the deal. Um, but there is a sustained and obvious effort to nail Inslaw from this point on. And it seems like it was spearheaded at this point by uh, Brick Brewer and Peter Videnex.
1: And, and I guess that's sustained. It's like, it seems like it is literally all they did. Yeah. Like like all they did every single day of the week, every single day of the working year for literal years and years is that it was, how do we screw over Inslaw? And, and, and I say that because that – oh, no, I say that all because it's like that is oddly enough the more likely and least complex scenario. You know, that, that's like literal of, of this story is so crazy that, that, that it, it, it's – yeah, essentially they're, they're – yeah, this, is, this, is, this isn't just an accident here.
2: Yeah. Now, we'll skip forward a little bit. And we'll get to uh, the significant date that we mentioned earlier, which is April 20th, 1983. Because on this date, this is when Inslaw requested an amendment to the implementation contracts that was designed to protect their ownership of enhanced promise. Can you walk me through this? So put, basically, they were willing to hand over the source code as long as the Department of Justice agreed not to to disseminate the software beyond the US attorney's offices that had already been agreed to in the contract signed back in March of 1982. So, uh, Have I got that right? Yes, pretty much. I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll just, I'll take that. I just want to jump off. So again,
1: on Hitler's birthday, 1983, the Justice Department receives from Inslaw. Inslaw has decided to make some concessions. These are concessions, however, that have been, you know, the Justice Department is is promising to do or not do certain things, um, but those are all things that will be like in the future. So essentially, it's like again, you you promise you're not going to hurt me later if I if I do you a favor now. Like, oh yeah, 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 sure, yeah, just 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 do just do what I want you to do now, because because le- later is difficult game. So. Law uh, signs a modification of the contract. He says, okay, so here you go. Here is a copy of the promised source code. You can do whatever further analysis you guys have wanted to do. You can send it out, and I think it actually is, it is sent out to another third party for benchmarking or, or for, for, like, for performance testing or for review. You can have this copy. You can have a copy of the source code. To use, I think it internally just for your own, just for your own like purposes of of better implementing the software. This is again, we are giving you a greater peek behind the curtain at this point than you would normally get. Um, you know, to, to to demonstrate our commitment to to this project uh, and to and again to smooth out the troubled waters.
2: That's the other thing as well, is that the trying to make this work despite the fact that it's clearly not working hamilton and innsler are determined to try and make this relationship work because he's got in mind that if i can if people can only see what i have created here all this trouble will pale in significance compared to the huge amount of money that will become in my way once word gets out of how good uh promises absolutely yeah the 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 ends justify the means the goal
1: justifies the the trouble and the struggle that I put myself to get to the goal. Um, so, to do all these things, Innslaw gives in exchange for promises, <laughs> which, as we've already experienced from the Justice Department, are worth nothing. And essentially, the Justice Department promised that they wouldn't screw Innslaw over promise.
2: And then they proceeded to
1: violate
2: that promise. So you can imagine how Danny must have felt and what he must have been thinking, listening to all of this, because what Bill Hamilton had laid out was a meticulously documented history of the Justice Department's fraudulent behavior and theft of Inslaw's software. But what he was about to tell Danny next would take this story in a psychedelic direction, and this is when Danny would begin to realize that there was something much, much bigger going on here. Because the same month that Innslaw requested the contract amendment, a man called Dominic Laty phoned Bill Hamilton at his office. Now, Leyte was the chairman of a firm called Hadron Incorporated, and he informed Hamilton that Hadron was aiming to corner the market on automated law enforcement software. And he offered to buy Inslaw outright. When Hamilton refused, Leyte told him, we have friends in the government and they have ways of making you sell. Now we'll get to who these friends in the government were um, in a little while. After Hamilton rejected Leyte's offer, the tension between Inslaw and justice escalated dramatically. Hamilton uh, had his investigators look into uh, Leyte and Hadron and he discovered that Peter uh, Vedenieks had brokered a number of contracts between Hadron and US Customs. Hadron, in turn, was owned by Earl Bryan, uh, who was very good friends with Attorney General Edwin Meese. After Meese had become Attorney General, Hadron went from being $12 million in debt to posting consistent profits after signing a number of lucrative contracts, sweetheart contracts with various government agencies, including the Department of Justice. So this raises a couple of key issues. First, had Bill Hamilton surrendered proprietary ownership of spooky promise by handing over the source code? Uh, I think myself and Ben are both in agreement when we say, no, he hadn't. Um, Not like justice was claiming anyway. Second, was Hamilton right to conclude that Leite's phone call and his threat, together with the presence of figures like Earl Bryan and Edwin Meese behind him, suggested that a larger criminal conspiracy was at play. And again, I think myself and Ben are in agreement when we say, yes, he was correct to conclude that. Now, remember, again, there is a huge amount of money at stake. Hamilton believes that the total value of enhanced promise might someday be in, you know, the $3 billion range. So as an additional series of goodwill gestures. Between August 1983 and February 1985, Inslaw installed these enhanced promise copies in 20 additional US Attorney's offices. But then in 1985, the Justice Department abruptly cancels part of their contract with Inslaw, which leaves the company several millions of dollars out of pocket. And this is despite the fact that the Justice Department's own counsel would find that Inslaw had fulfilled all its obligations under the contract. Now, remember that, as we've established, the contract that Inslaw signed had included a payment on objectives met clause, and the Department of Justice had kept fucking around and claiming that targets would be missed without any real justification, trying to violate them on various technicalities. This had meant that the Hamiltons were taking out loans to keep the lights on, and as a result, Inslaw was driven into bankruptcy Now, because of the nature of the bankruptcy laws, the Justice Department was trying to force INSLAW to change their bankruptcy status to Chapter 7, which is liquidation. In fact, we now know that um, the director of ELUST, the uh, executive office of the United States Trustees, which is a a Department of Justice uh, component had actually pressured the trustee assigned to the Inslaw case, who was called Edward White, to convert Inslaw's bankruptcy from Chapter 11 to Chapter 7. Um, And this would have meant that because the Department of Justice had listed itself as one of Inslaw's creditors, it would have meant that Justice would have been able to basically go into Inslaw's offices and help themselves to everything. Um, You know, the chairs, the cabinets, the computers, (laughs) the carpeting and enhance promise. And there's something else as well here, which is according to the Committee on the Judiciary Report, um, after this contract finally fell apart, Hamilton found out that quote without notice and certainly without permission the Department of Justice had illegally copied inslaw's enhanced promise software and eventually installed it at 25 additional U.S attorney's offices the department also brought another 31 U.S attorneys offices online to enhance promise systems via telecommunications Inslaw first learned of these unauthorized actions in September of 1985. As a kind of final Hail Mary, Inslaw offers to sell enhanced promised licenses to the Department of Justice. All transgressions forgiven. The Department of Justice tells them, in so many words, to fuck off. And, you know, this is when Inslaw files a claim against the Department of Justice at Bankruptcy Court. And the real war begins then. Just as a... A kind of addendum here, which is one of Inslaw's attorneys was Elliot Richardson. He'd been a player in Watergate. He'd served as Nixon's Secretary of Defense and then his Attorney General. He'd been in the role five months when Nixon asked him to fire uh, Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor. Uh, Richardson handed in his resignation instead, you know. I just thought I'd mention that because it's quite interesting that even on Inslaw's side of this dispute, you still have figures who are connected to some of these major... Uh, I suppose you could call them deep political events, you know, of the last 20 years or so of American history. Now, this is where if things weren't already tangled and complex and hard enough to follow, this is where they're going to get um, even trickier to navigate. So what I recommend you do is grab a pen and notepad and jot this stuff down as we go along. So February of 1987, Inslaw requests an independent handling hearing, and this is to make the Justice Department hold a hearing that will be independent of any of their own guys, and basically investigate themselves. You know that's what that's what they're looking for. Um, now there is a, a court judge appointed to handle Inslee's Chapter Eleven proceedings, and this is Judge George Basin, and he grants this request. You know he's kind of sees that it's clearly obvious to anyone with eyes to see that Inslaw has been wronged here. And eventually his judgment bears this out because what he finds is that the Department of Justice unlawfully, intentionally and willfully tried to um, convert Inslaw's chapter 11 reorganization case to a chapter seven liquidation without justification and by improper means, um, And he also had very harsh words for most of the prominent Justice Department players, you know, describing them as dishonest, unbelievable, shifty, evasive, so on and so forth. Judge Basin had been appointed uh, to the District of Columbia Bankruptcy Court in 1984. He was expecting a four-year term, but he sought an early reappointment in 1987. He was informed in December that... um, they decided to go with another candidate, head the Court of Appeals. And Judge Basin believes that this is because the Department of Justice were unhappy with his findings and they had covertly influenced the selection process. So we'll move on from that and get into the weeds around Earl Bryan and Edwin Meese. Because the question we have to ask ourselves, the question Hamilton was asking, and the question that Danny started to ask is, did the people behind Inslaw's controlled demolition want the Hamiltons to sell to anyone in particular? And when this failed, this attempt to muscle Inslaw into selling, you know, when it seemed like forcing them into bankruptcy was going to take too long, did they resort to straight up theft? Well, everything you are about to hear, must be prefaced with a massive allegedly. But this is just a taste, a tenth of some of the stuff that first Bill Hamilton and his investigators and then Danny Casolaro unearthed when they looked into all of this in more depth. So we'll begin with Earl Bryan. Now he has appeared on the show before, but for newcomers, there's a quick rundown. So Earl Bryan had been California's secretary of health while Reagan was governor. Prior to this, he'd been a combat medic during, surprise, surprise, the Phoenix program. And again, he is not even the only Phoenix program connected person in this story. There are many more. Bill Hamilton himself is one of them. And it's quite interesting, in fact, to think that Bill Hamilton was working for the NSA in Vietnam back in the late 60s, and he was installing... Um, Viet Cong surveillance posts, electronic surveillance posts in the jungle. And he also devised a computer translation program that was meant to assist with interrogations and collecting intelligence from the local populations. And he worked on this project under the Joint Publications Research Service, which later turned out to be a unit in the CIA. Hamilton had made a name for himself here. And when he rotated back to America, my suspicion is that people were keeping tabs on what he was up to because they knew that he was a pretty gifted programmer and a very gifted intelligence analyst as well so to bring it back to earl brian at the end of reagan's term as governor brian was caught with stolen computer tapes that contained seventy thousand people's welfare records it's still unclear exactly what he was intending to do with them but after the hubbub had died down he reinvented himself as a venture capitalist and spent most of the 1970s plowing money into various tech-related businesses that were usually connected to the security state. In 1975, he took over a firm called uh, Zonix. Zonix was primarily concerned with telecommunications, radar, and X-ray imaging, and it held multiple contracts with the CIA, the Department of Defense, and the Pentagon. And Brian resigned his post there about a month before the SEC launched an investigation into fraud and stock manipulation at the company. By 1978, he'd invested in a company called Hadron. Hadron, of course, being um, who Dominic Laity was calling on behalf as a representative of when he tried to muscle Bill Hamilton into selling. This was another company that was focused on telecommunications and computers, and they held contracts with the Pentagon, again, the CIA, and the NSA. And they also developed and implemented a microwave communication system for the Jordanian Air Force. Brian then formed a new company called Biotech Capital Corporation. Uh, He would rename this Info Technology in 1987. He brought Hadron under its umbrella. This was in 1980. So after Reagan became president, he gave Brian a position under Edwin Meese, who Again, very good friend of his, who we discussed, we discussed him at length in our casino series. Reagan had dreamed up an idea that he called Iranian Medicaid. And this was his attempt to show a, a softer, more benevolent side of the American imperium to this new revolutionary government in Tehran. And he tasked Brian and Mies with working out the details and selling it to the new regime. Now, Brian's business interests and his new role as a Medicaid evangelist these gave him plenty of cover to travel around the Middle East. And this is not too dissimilar to how people like Bush and the Dulleses and so on operated, you know, back in the well, the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, right up to the sixties and beyond. You know, you use um, business trips and journeys as cover for intelligence operations. Brian is supposed to have told Edwin Meese shortly after his appointment that he was going to be the Ross Perot of the Reagan administration. Now, presumably this meant that he was going to become a billionaire by selling computer software to the US government and Meese was going to sign off everything. No questions asked, you know, sweetheart deals. Uh, In fact, Edwin Meese's wife had already bought $15,000 worth of stock in biotech, which Meese didn't list on his disclosures. So by 1981, Earl Bryan was deeply pissed because the Department of Justice was said to be finalizing, you know, an estimated three to $5 billion worth of automated data processing upgrade contracts. And none of Bryan's companies were in contention at all. Inslaw's promise had been the clear front runner ever since the late 70s. And now with all these new enhancements, the Hamiltons were adding to it, nothing that any of Bryan's firms were working on could compete it blew them out of the water however and again allegedly Earl Bryan had very deep-seated personal reasons to feel slighted uh, to feel a sense of injustice and to understand why we have to skip forward to 1996 because in the spring of that year the investigative journalist Gordon Thomas went to Tel Aviv to interview Rafi Eitan for a Channel 4 documentary series called The Spy Machine. Now, Thomas would spend uh, three years researching the history of Mossad, and he gathered so much material that a documentary alone wasn't enough to contain it all. So two years later, he published uh, the book Gideon's Spies. Now, in a sworn affidavit that Thomas submitted to the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, thomas said this quote during the videotaping of an interview of him on april 17 1996 rafi etan asked me at one point to turn off the video camera whereupon he described what he views as the crowning achievement of his lifetime of service to israeli intelligence the sale to foreign governments through front companies of a computer software system, Promise, for tracking terrorists and Israeli intelligence's secret downloading and copying of the information on terrorists that each government entered into its new terrorist tracking computer system. And then Gordon Thomas went on to say, Eitan told me that the source of the computer software that Israeli intelligence modified for its anti-terrorism initiative was Earl W. Bryan." who had been a member of the California cabinet of Ronald Reagan during the early 1970s, Brian had discovered that the US Department of Justice was already using a modified version of the same software product in order to track money laundering and other criminal activities, a fact that Brian related to Rafi Etan during a visit to Tel Aviv. Now, how did Earl Brian know Rafi Etan? Well, and again, allegedly, The answers to that would come through one of Danny's key sources. We'll be talking about him next episode. And it would also come from an Israeli intelligence operative called Ari Ben Minash. What they said is that in 1980, Earl Bryan is supposed to have attended the meetings in Paris where emissaries from the US Anglo-Israeli intelligence underworld met with Iranian representatives to deliver them $40 million and obtain a promise that the 52 American hostages in Tehran wouldn't be released until after Reagan had won the election. And indeed, his diary from this time does show a mysterious, unexplained two-day trip to Paris during the weekend the meeting is said to have taken place. Uh, Please, again, refer to Casino 5 for more information about this. And it was through these October surprise meetings and Earl Bryan's frequent visits to the Middle East that he became friendly with Rafi Etan. So you have the old spymaster Etan, the man who caught Adolf Eichmann, looking for anything that will give Israel the edge over its enemies. And you have Earl Bryan, the spook CEO and venture capitalist, seething at his lack of compensation and recognition for his role in the October surprise with many contacts in the Department of Justice who are all well aware that Promise is a potential goldmine. And they're all looking for a way to get hold of this sweet enhanced software. So to quote Carl Oglesby, what artist of the possible saw the convergence of these two problems in a common solution? So allegedly, a gentleman's agreement was reached, which is that Brian would exert influence in the Department of Justice to frustrate and tank the Innslaw contract and bankrupt the company, enabling him to acquire spooky promise and sell it for his own gain. And he would also provide Rafi Etan with a copy. So corroborating evidence, how true do we know any of this is? Well, in 1983, this was February. So, this is uh, just before Inslaw asked for these contract amendments. A Dr. Benjamin Orr asks to stop by Inslaw's head office. He wants a demonstration of the Enhanced Promise software. And by all accounts, he was knocked out by it and he promised that he'd be in touch. But after he left Inslaw that day, Hamilton never saw him again. However, Dr. Orr also visited the Department of Justice on May 6, 1983. And he left the same day with a copy of Enhanced Promise. So he visits Inslaw in February, checks out Enhanced Promise. Uh, A couple of months later, the Hamiltons and Inslaw propose this amendment where they will supply Enhanced Promise to the Department of Justice. And then a couple of months after that, Benjamin Orr visits the Department of Justice and leaves with spooky promise. Now, years after this, Hamilton and his colleague Dean Merrill pick out Dr. Benjamin Orr from a mugshot lineup that they've been shown by Senate investigators. And it turns out that Dr. Benjamin Orr was Rafi Eitan. There is a very good chance that as of 1983, Israeli intelligence had access to the enhanced promise Software. And it was in hearing about all of this from Bill Hamilton and one of his key sources, a man that we're going to discuss in more depth next episode, and doing the legwork, doing the gumshoe investigative work, that Danny was going to go from being somebody with a journalistic curiosity. In the story of the Innslaw scandal, to being someone who was gripped by an all consuming obsession.
1: I like to see, or I imagine in my mind, that again, you have the figure of Danny Casalero, tall, blonde, and beautiful, in there with Bill Hamilton. And Danny Casalero, the seeker is in the position of having that sensation of, I've found the thing that I'm seeking. And that's this story. And I say that because it's like, and we haven't even gotten to the crazier parts yet. The story just gets crazier. And an element of how destabilizing this is, is that the narrative that um that, that like this is all this is all a scam or that this wasn't a a in you know an organized theft or a, a criminal enterprise is is that it's the the notion this is all made up becomes so unlikely that even the craziest conspiracy theories become more plausible so danny Casalero has just heard all this right? and then bill hamilton Lays on the contact that is going to drive the next phase really of Danny Casalero's life. And that's Bill Hamilton says to him, Well, I've told you what I can, but if you want to know more, there's this guy named Michael Rukonasuda.
0: Palm, gem, and tarot. A few few escape escape your magic arrow. arrow. I saw saw you reel them in in for miles. Each captivated captivated, crooked crooked smile. And you know you can't. Heal them all Your double diamond disposition Refractions of your center prism Your magic arrow flies precision You saw it from that vantage point Perimeter scratched on the nation's native high, and we saw those Christian clippers glide over white caps and white sails high, over white knuckles. And I was fine till I saw the pale horse ride and open up its gate across the ocean floor. You were fine till you saw the white rider take and take some more.